that this morning we're beginning a new series and we're going to look at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. So today it will simply be an introduction to Luke's Gospel. And just like the other three books, uh, the other three Gospel books, the penman doesn't actually give his name away anywhere. We don't really know from reading Luke's Gospel that Luke is the writer of this Gospel. Even so, authorship is ascribed to Luke. And ultimately, what really matters is that this Gospel account is written under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. As such, Luke's Gospel is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So, who was Luke? Luke was a physician. In other words, he was a medical doctor. We see that to be the case in Colossians chapter 3, one of Paul's, the Apostle Paul's epistles. Paul wrote, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, or greeteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him, and Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. So Paul has listed the various acquaintances of his who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he have a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Note that Dr Luke is not grouped with what Paul refers to as his fellow workers who are of the circumcision. In other words, it seems very likely that Luke was a Gentile believer and he was not uh, a Jewish convert. He was not a Jewish believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke was a travelling companion of the Apostle Paul and he was with him during his imprisonment in Rome. I should imagine that Luke, being a doctor, was very handy to have around for Paul. He would have been able to look after Paul in his um, physical afflictions. Paul was someone who experienced a lot of physical affliction. Luke's Gospel is the first of two Bible books that are ascribed to him. The other book is Acts of the Apostles, And that brings us to our passage now, to the introduction in Luke's Gospel. I'll read just, I'm not going to read all uh, what I read before, but we'll look at the first four verses here. Verse 1, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, 
it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. It can be seen there in verse 3 that Luke was writing to the most excellent Theophilus and that connects very nicely with Acts chapter 1 verse 1 where it is written, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So in the book of Acts you can read all about Luke meeting Paul in Troas on his second missionary journey. Also Luke was in Philippi. I mentioned Philippi, that was the place where the Lord opened Lydia's heart to attend to the gospel message that um, the Apostle Paul proclaimed and, and Luke was with Paul at that time. And also in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, Luke is seen to be the only one who remained with Paul during his imprisonment in Rome. As for Luke's gospel here and our opening verses, Luke acknowledges that many others had already written about the Lord Jesus Christ and that would have been concerning his birth, his life, his miracles his physical healings, his teachings, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension. We see all of that in the other gospel accounts, don't we? (coughs) Although, who the other people are who who have already written an orderly and precise account concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who all of those people are, we're not told. We're not told. Anyway, Luke declares his own purpose for writing a full and factual account and he does so in chronological order, which I find very helpful. And it's a chronological order of the events of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, from his birth to his ascension. And the reason that Luke also undertook to do such a thing to write this orderly account, was to dispel any doubts concerning the gospel truth that the most excellent Theophilus had been taught. We see that to be the case in verse 4, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Does that mean that Theophilus did not as yet have a certain and unwavering knowledge and saving truth, uh, saving faith rather, in the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know the answer to that one, but Luke's reason reason for writing his gospel account seems to be much the same reason as um, John wrote his gospel account. Concerning all the miracles of Jesus that John wrote about in his gospel, he said in John chapter 20 and verse 31. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That seems to me like the most obvious reason and the best reason of all for writing an orderly chronological account of the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth, 
his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Why? Why would, why would we need to know all of this? Ultimately, that we might believe in him and have life in his name. And what was good for Theophilus is certainly good for us. That's a good reason. Pray that as a result of studying Luke's gospel, God the Holy Spirit will establish each one of you in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to the end that in your heart and mind you possess a certain and unwavering confidence in his finished work of redemption and in his ability to present you faultless and with exceeding joy in the presence of of his glory. What we're going to be looking at this morning is a priest named Zacharias being informed by an angel that his wife Elizabeth was to conceive and give birth to a boy child who was to be called John and that he would be a prophet of God. That was tremendous news when you consider that there had been no prophetic voice For about 400 years, there'd been silence during the last 400 years. And that that long silence would finally be broken by John the Baptist, whose prophetic ministry would be to make ready a people prepared for the coming of the Christ who was promised in the Old Testament. First of all, we're introduced to the parents of John the Baptist. According to verse 5, Zacharias was a priest and his wife Elizabeth was from the high priestly house of Aaron. Aaron was the very first Jewish high priest. Some 1500 years earlier, Aaron was the brother of Moses. So you'd think that John, when he finally would enter the scene when, and grow up to be a man, It seems obvious that he had become a priest, coming from that priestly stock. His father being a priest and his mother being from the house of Aaron, the high priest. Not so, not so. Long before his conception and his birth, the Lord God had ordained John to be a prophet. And verse 6 tells us the most important thing about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Let's have a look at verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Do you know, what people say about me when I'm dead and gone, quite frankly, I couldn't care less because I won't be there, but I, I would hope that if nothing else, if there's going to be anything on my on my gravestone, it would be that he was righteous before God. I couldn't care less about anything else, but that Glenn was righteous before God. That that that's nice, and that is what we should all be looking for. Being righteous can simply mean being upright in the sense of being decent and upstanding and being keen to do the right thing, having some kind of a moral compass, having a good idea of right from wrong. We all have that to varying degrees, don't we? God has written the works of his law in our hearts, every one of us. I say every one of us, 
That means I'm not just talking about Christians. Everyone in this world has something of the works of God's law written in the heart. And that's why we instinctively know when we're doing something wrong or not. Our conscience either accuses us or it excuses us, depending on what we're up to at the time. And so, to varying degrees, people can be righteous, they can be morally upright to a degree. I'm sure there were many people, many people with a, a, a certain sense of morality last week who rejoiced in the United States when the justices there in the Supreme Court um, voted to overrule Roe v. Wade. Doesn't make them all Christians, though. There's more going on in verse 6. Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous before God. And that speaks of their position before a holy and righteous God. They stood before God, accepted and approved by him. And the only way that that can ever happen is if God himself declares a person to be righteous. No amount of law-keeping will make a person righteous before God. A person who is righteous before God is someone who stands before God, covered in the righteousness of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the case of Zacharias and Elizabeth, their confidence was not in themselves, but in Jesus, whom the Old Testament had set forth in very clear and easy to understand prophecies. And I'll just pick one of those prophecies from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, where it is written, (coughs) Surely he have borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That prophecy was written about 700 years before Zacharias and Elizabeth were, were born. They would have known of prophecies like that and their trust would have been in the one whom those prophecies spoke of, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was coming into the world. Nothing whatsoever has changed since Zacharias and Elizabeth. If you are righteous before God, then you are someone whose acceptance by God is in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you believe has sinlessly kept God's law that you have so spectacularly failed to keep. Furthermore, you believe that Jesus was punished for your transgressions at the cross where he shed his blood and and he sacrificially laid down his life for you. That kind of belief is not something that you can muster up within yourself. It is a God-given faith to all 
who are righteous before him. And it will inevitably be seen to varying degrees in the life that you now live in the flesh by faith of the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you. Just look at the evidence of the faith of Zacharias and Elizabeth and of their being righteous before God. According to verse 6 there, they walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless, blameless in the lives that they now lived in the flesh, and most of all, holy and without blame in God's sight and in his love, an everlasting love. Zacharias and Elizabeth remind me of a man of God called Job in the Old Testament. Job was another one whose faith was unquestionably and entirely in the coming Christ, about whom he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job, I don't know how long he lived before Jesus came into the world, but his faith was in his Redeemer, the man who is God, who would stand on the earth in the latter days. And his trust was in Jesus. That man's faith, the faith of Job, and his righteousness before God, was also very evident in that he was said to have been perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed or shunned evil. You see that in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. We can consider the angel who visits with an answer to prayer. Zacharias was busy carrying out his priestly duties, which on this occasion involved burning incense in the holy place as the people worshipped outside. As Zacharias did so, there appeared unto him the angel Gabriel and he was struck with fear. That reminds me of the last book that we were looking at on Sunday mornings, the book of Daniel. The angel Gabriel visited Daniel with an answer to prayer and Daniel, he he became fearful as well. And Gabriel appeared to Daniel even as Daniel was still praying. I don't know if you remember that. But whilst Daniel was praying, his prayer was answered with a visit from the angel Gabriel. Perhaps you have had an answer to prayer while you were still praying it. I certainly have had. It depends, doesn't it? Equally, as you probably know from your own experience, an answer to prayer can take a lot longer. Perhaps many, many years, as was the case in our passage. Ultimately, God answers prayers in his own perfect time. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were old and they were childless. All hope of Elizabeth bearing a child had faded a long time ago. Even so, in verse 13, the angel said to Zacharias, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. The prayer that 
the prayer that has been heard in heaven and was now being answered by a visit from Gabriel had no doubt been uttered by Zacharias when he and his wife were a good few years younger. Consequently, instead of joyfully praising God, who hears and hearkens to the prayers of his people, Zacharias did not believe the angel. 2,000 years earlier, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, gave birth to their son Isaac. She was 90 years old at the time, and Abraham was 100. Zacharias would most certainly have known all about that. He would have known that promise of a child to Abraham and then delivering on that promise when Abraham and Sarah was so old. Even so, Zacharias did not believe the words of God's messenger, Gabriel, and consequently he was struck dumb until such time John the Baptist was born. J.C. Ryle said, It goes to show that the holiest actions of the holiest saint that ever lived are all more or less full of defects and imperfections. Maybe you're someone who is righteous before God in that you truly believe that in the fullness of time your iniquity was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross where he carried your sins away as far as the east is from the west. And if that is you, praise God for that. Yet, for all of that, like Zacharias, you still struggle with unbelief and you tend to place limitations on what Almighty God is able to accomplish. It's so utterly ridiculous, isn't it? You, you know, you, hopefully you believe, as a Christian, you believe that in six days God created the heavens and the earth. He finished his creative handiwork on the on the <clears throat> and rested on the seventh day you believe all that and even more amazing you believe that God has made you a new creature in Christ old things have passed away behold all things have become new you believe that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh and that he bear your sins in his body on the cross and with his stripes you are healed. You believe those things but even so you still put limitations on what God can do. If that that is you then pray that the Lord would build you up in your holy Christian faith as you feed upon his inerrant and infallible word. We can consider the angel's message for Zacharias concerning the child that was promised to him and Elizabeth. Look at verse 15 there. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. In verse 15... Gabriel said the following to the elderly priest concerning John, John the Baptist. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. 
Note that Gabriel did not give an explanation to Zacharias about who the Holy Ghost is. And Luke did not give any explanations about the Holy Ghost for the benefit of the most excellent Theophilus or for our benefit. No explanations were simply told there in verse 15 that he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. This is just one example in the Bible of the fact that God, the Holy Spirit and indeed the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is taught and believed by Jews of old or was um, taught and believed by the Jews of old. Jews who had a genuine saving faith in God. Putting it another way, Trinitarian doctrine is not something that has somehow crept in or been introduced since the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. I like what one of the Bible commentators, Lensky, said about verse 15. He said, Not enough attention is paid to the striking fact that the person of the Holy Spirit and his divine work are mentioned to Jews as being perfectly known to them. There is never a word of explanation that God exists in three persons and there is never even a question to say nothing of a word of objection in a Unitarian sense. You don't get these Jews saying, this is ridiculous, we don't believe in the Holy Ghost. This means that the Jews knew and believed in the Trinity and and that they had gained this knowledge and this faith from the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written at this time. They believed in that God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Where did that belief come from? The Old Testament scriptures. The Jews of this period were not Unitarian as are those of today. You might like to remember what Lenski said and more to the point, you might like to remember what the Bible teaches about God if ever you feel any inclination to lord and to exalt unbelieving Jews of today whose God is most certainly not the God of the Bible. In verses 16 and 17, Gabriel told Zacharias, the priest, what the prophetic ministry of his son John would be, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord and they shall turn to the Lord their God Who was he speaking about there? We're going to see in more detail in the weeks to come. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. Jehovah God, the God manifest in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his prophetic ministry. He prepared the way for the Lord their God and they shall return to the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist's ministry would be one of preparing disobedient and unbelieving Jewish hearts for the imminent arrival of the Christ, the promised Messiah, whom their forefathers had looked forward to and were justified by. They were justified by faith in him. Just like I mentioned Job of old. 
Another one would have been Abraham, who rejoiced to see the day of Christ. He saw it and was glad. Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Jesus came into the world, rejoiced to see the day of Christ. And he part, in part, he saw that with the birth of his, the promised son, Isaac, when he was a hundred years old. As shall be seen in chapter 3, in fulfilment of his prophetic calling and of him being filled with the Holy Ghost, John the Baptist preached the <coughs> baptism of repentance for the remission or forgiveness of sins. And as we finish now, I can do no better than to do likewise and call on any, every one of you who hasn't already done so to repent and to be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins. In Jesus' name, Amen.